Grab your Bibles, open those to the beginning of the sermon, Matthew chapter 5, and to leave it open throughout our time, I'll be referencing different parts of the sermon throughout, and I think it will help you, it will serve you if you can glance down and kind of see where I'm referring to. But for now, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 of chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, then chapter 7, verse 12, and verses 24 and 29. Please listen as I read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 7, verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you are a God who delights in making yourself known to us, not just for the sake of of our knowledge, but you reveal yourself to us for the sake even of our own joy and happiness and delight, even in this life. God, you are a God who shines light into darkness and you warm, cold hearts. God, I pray through your word and by the power of your spirit, would you warm 
our hearts on this cold morning. God, what an incredible opportunity we have to come to these words, these words of life spoken by your son, given to us to hear and to heed so that we might have life and life in his name. God, I pray that to everyone who hears these words of yours this morning, would you grant that life and grant it abundantly? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I stand here with a mix of excitement and trepidation. Uh, in some senses, that's true every Sunday morning, I guess, and for different reasons on different Sundays. But especially this morning, as our series through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I don't think it's completely unreasonable, it's not a complete overstatement for me to say that this is the greatest sermon ever. And I hope it's so abundantly clear that I am referring to Jesus' sermon in the Gospel of Matthew that I would in no way ever apply that kind of a title to anything that me or anyone else would ever put up here, put together as a sermon. No, but I think, I think we can reasonably conclude that this, Matthew's presentation of Jesus giving this whole, complete, three-chapter-long sermon is, has got to be the greatest sermon ever. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount contains some of the most well-known words in all of the Bible, words that have actually shaped all of, all of Western civilization, really. I mean, I wonder how many of us, just growing up, like at home from our moms or maybe even at school, public schools from our teachers, we, we probably heard the so-called golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, the version we have doesn't even have the unto, but like I can't not remember it in that unto language. I think that comes from the old King James probably. And there are a lot of people out there who know that, who know like that is the golden rule. That's just how we're supposed to treat each other. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But there's a lot of people who know that without ever actually knowing that it comes from Jesus or it comes from Jesus' sermon right here in Matthew. At the same time, for as much as the Sermon on the Mount has had incredible, pervasive, widespread influence all throughout the years, there's also quite a few parts of this sermon that we might consider some of the hardest sayings of Jesus. Now, there is a, a long-standing tradition, I'm not sure how many of you have ever done this, but you know, like when you're a kid, maybe you re would receive your very own first Bible that's like yours, not like a children's Bible, but like the actual Bible. And there's a tradition that a lot of times what you do is you would you'd write a verse in the you know, front of that Bible, like a key verse or maybe a life verse or that kind of thing. I'm guessing that none of you ever wrote or received one that had written in it in there like your life verse of Matthew 5:29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. we hear that, we're like, wait, what? That's in the same, like the same sermon as like do unto others as you would have others do unto you? Well, there are those terrifying words near the end of this same sermon. 
where Jesus says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, Jesus goes, goes so far to say that there are those who just assume that they are in relationship with him, that they have, they have a knowledge of him, and Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. This is Jesus saying those things. I mean, Jesus, like to many of us Christians here, but even like to many people who are non-Christians who don't have a, a great familiarity with all that Jesus says, like we just think of like Jesus is supposed to be the nice one in the Bible, right? Like Jesus is the one who's always saying like kind things and loving things and welcoming things and gracious things. And I would argue that actually all those things are kind and loving and gracious things, but they're often not what we expect to come from Jesus. I mean, even if for a long time in our, in our world, in our society, if you were to ask a non-Christian about Jesus, they would say, yeah, I don't think I believe in his death and resurrection or that kind of thing, but I believe that Jesus was absolutely a very good, a great moral teacher. And yet, at the same time, we don't seem to just take seriously many of the great moral teachings of Jesus, especially the ones right here in the sermon. And I bring all that up to kind of raise the issues that I think sometimes I don't think we really know exactly what to do with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's little things that we like, but I don't think we really know what to do with the, with the whole thing. What do we do with Jesus' whole sermon that he preached in the Sermon, of, in the sermon on the Mount? It reminds me of there was a man in Argentina... Uh, he owned this massive, massive plot of land, acres and acres of land. And his wife, who he loved dearly, she, she passed away quite suddenly. She always wanted to have a garden. He never got around to planting it. She passed away. And so he wanted to plant this garden as a tribute to her. And she loved music. So he planted this, this garden in the shape of a guitar. And like this massive, like acres acres huge garden. So big, beautifully ornate, arranged in a a precise image depicting a guitar. I mean, people can fly overhead. You can, you can do an internet search and see the pictures if you want. You can fly overhead and see this beautiful picture of this guitar from the skies. But the ironic thing is that the man who planted it has never actually seen it before because he's afraid of flying. And I think, oddly enough, sometimes we treat the Sermon on the Mount in a similar way. Like we know there's, there's some parts of it that make sense. We know that there's parts that, that are supposed to be kind of beautiful, but there's some parts that scare us. We never really actually kind of get up in the air and do a flyover and take in the whole thing, either because we don't know what to do with those parts or because maybe even out of fear of what we might find if we actually take the sermon at face value. So this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to do a flyover. I want to do a flyover of this whole thing, the whole Sermon on the Mount, so that we can begin this series with an understanding of what Matthew is intending to say to us through the way that he presents Jesus preaching this whole thing. Now, don't worry, we're not going to just do this and then kind of move on with Matthew. After this morning, we're going to come back and we're going to go back through the whole sermon very slow, even one beatitude at a time. 
first this morning, I want to begin with the flyover. I want us to see what's happening in this whole sermon. Before I say what that is, I realize there might be some of you here this morning who maybe you're not very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're not very familiar with Christianity. Maybe you're wondering, like, wait a minute, like, what is all this stuff that he's talking about, like the Sermon on the Mount and things that are kind of scary or things that we don't understand? And in some ways, I want to just acknowledge that if you have no familiarity at all with the Sermon on the Mount, this might be a bit challenging because I can't read the whole thing. I'm just going to be kind of referring to kind of parts of it throughout the sermon. But at the same time, at the same time, if that's you, at the same time, I actually think this is an incredible, exciting opportunity for you to come with fresh eyes with no kind of like preconceived notions about what this sermon is and what this is intending to do. I mean, this is Matthew's presentation of Jesus' great teaching. And I think the whole thing can be summarized like this. Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us what it looks like to be whole hearted disciples who follow him in his kingdom by doing the will of God. I think every single part of the sermon in some way is contributing to that great goal. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to be wholehearted, complete people who are his disciples who, who follow him in his kingdom under his rule and reign by doing the will of God, by doing the will of his Father in heaven. And look, when I say that, when I say that's the, that's the primary thing that I think we need to grasp from this whole sermon, I'm not just saying that, that we need to just kind of learn that. But no, if we get that, if we grasp that, then these words, Jesus' teaching and his words in the sermon can have their, their intended effect on us. They can actually transform us and, and change us and greatly increase our, our faith and our, our faith in him and our love for him. That's what I hope will happen beginning today and especially throughout the coming weeks and months. Listen, we begin to get a picture of this right out of the gate. I mean, Jesus, as you might imagine, any good sermon has an introduction, a main body, and a conclusion. And I'm just going to kind of break it down just like that. And right here, right out of the gate in his attention-getting introduction, Jesus is actually completely redefining what the good life looks like in the kingdom. You see that in the introduction, verses 1 to 16 of chapter 5, you see that especially in these statements that we commonly call the, the Beatitudes. So Jesus, he ascends up this mountain, and I think we do well not to picture this like a mountain like we might have here in our country. This isn't like, you know, the white-capped Rockies. We should probably picture this more as like a, a very large grassy hill with some kind of patches of rock here, here and there up in the region of Galilee. So Jesus is there, he sits down, his disciples that he has personally called to himself, they're there, but, but not just then, there's these great crowds of people who have already kind of caught a glimpse of Jesus preaching and teaching. They're gathered there to listen to Jesus' teaching as well. And he opens with these statements that describe what it looks like to live in a state of blessedness. 
Listen, that's a really important distinction here. These are not statements describing the kinds of people that God likes to bless. He's not saying, like, these are the kinds of people I like to bless with other things, although that may actually be true, but it completely misses the point. What Jesus is saying is that each of these things in themselves, when we experience them, when we live them as part of our being in the kingdom, which I'll talk about a little bit more in just a moment, but when we live these things, when we experience these things, they themselves constitute a state of blessedness. One writer even suggests that these statements are are descriptions of genuine human flourishing. He even goes so far as to suggest that we should translate it as, as flourishing are so on and so forth. I think to maybe put it in language that you and I might use, according to Jesus, this is the good life. I mean, listen to these nine beatitudes, these nine descriptions of the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those, is a bit of a paraphrase, blessed are those who are mistreated because of our association with Jesus. I'm going to resist the temptation to unpack each and every single one of those on their own because we're going to spend a Sunday on each one of those on its own so I know I'm just leaving a lot of stuff kind of out there just unanswered. What I want to do is let the overall, just let the overall vision, can we call it strange, a, a strange picture of the good life? I just want the, the overall effect of this composite picture of the good life to, to impact, us, impact us, friends. This is a completely upside-down picture from what you and I would expect. It's completely upside-down from what you and I would expect. Look, every one of us here has a vision of what we think the good life should be. And it might not be explicit. In fact, chances are you probably don't have it written down somewhere. But every single day, it's, and, it, and it might not even be like explicit in, in front of mind every single morning when you wake up. But there is something there somewhere in your mind operating in, in the background that you use as a, as a grid to just kind of think about and evaluate how your life is going in any given moment. I mean, are you living the good life? How do you know that? What are the qualities and the, the characteristics that, you are, that you're using to actually quantify that? If I asked you to actually sit down and write a list, just give me a list of like six or seven things that you think constitute the good life, I'm guessing they probably wouldn't just naturally match up with the things that Jesus just told us. And I'm guessing it would maybe sound something more like this. Those who are living the good life are those who are 
rich. And we might just leave it at that. We might just say like rich. <laughs> like blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who are prospering economically. But even then there's many of us who are like, no, 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 no. Like we know that's not what we're supposed to say. But even then, like, wouldn't you probably expect to be like, okay, fine. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like, you know, I'm going to be spiritual about this. So blessed are those who are rich in spirit, who are spiritually rich. Jesus doesn't even say that. He says blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Your list might continue like this. Blessed are those whose careers are going how they planned. Blessed are those who are living the American dream Flourishing, blessed are the, the strong, those who have their physical health. B- blessed are those who bless themselves. Blessed are those who have great social lives, the right kind of people and friends all around them. Blessed are those who get to eat out often at all the cool places. All right, maybe that list reveals more about me than you. And I'm not saying that any of those things can't be received as blessings from God. In fact, if you are experiencing any one of those things, you should joyfully receive that as a blessing from God. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is that they don't add up to the good life. And I want to suggest that that's actually really good news because the reality is is that many of us, if not most of us, but at least some of us, aren't going to experience the things that we put on our list. And if we do, we don't really experience them in true and lasting ways. Or even if we do, we experience them, and yet we still kind of feel like, wait a minute, even if I'm having experiencing the things on my list, it doesn't just deep down, it doesn't feel like I'm actually living the good life. No, the good news is that Jesus has a completely different list and a completely different vision of the good life. Look, I realize that even still, you might not be presently experiencing all the states of being that Jesus described on this list, but I want you to know this, you can. You absolutely can which again we'll expand on at length in the coming weeks. But what I want you to see here just before we move on is that the good life that Jesus is describing is bound up with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that has to do with God's rule and reign over his people. Jesus is saying this is what it looks like. This is what it actually looks like, and this is a genuine experience that we can have when the rule and reign of God comes to us, when we come under the rule and reign of God, and when the rule, the rule and reign of God comes into our hearts. And that theme, that theme is going to carry right through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is actually intending to speak to us about what our lives should actually look like. That probably captures the main body of Jesus' sermon here. Second thing I want us to see about the sermon here, Jesus redefines what real righteousness under his rule looks like. Friends, that is what the main body of the whole Sermon on the Mount is about, all the way from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, before we get to Jesus' very specific 
conclusion, Jesus is redefining real righteousness. When I say redefine, I don't mean redefine like Jesus is not undoing everything that the rest of the Bible says about it. He's not undoing what the Old Testament says about righteousness. In fact, Jesus is very clear right out of the gate in chapter 5, 17, that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Friends, that's a shorthand for the whole Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament, everything Everything in our Bibles that comes literally from Genesis right up to Malachi to the very end of the Old Testament, before we get to Matthew, which begins the New Testament, Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to undo that. I'm not coming to get rid of that. I am actually coming to fulfill that. And even then, sometimes I think we hear that and we're like, oh, he's, coming, he's not coming to abolish it and get rid of it. He's coming to fulfill it and get rid of it. No, he's coming to fulfill it, to bring it to its fullest expression, the greatest expression that was always intended by everything that the Old Testament scriptures said about this idea of righteousness, which is why Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been an absolutely shocking statement for them to hear. Let's just be honest, that's a shocking statement for us to hear. In fact, it's so, it's so shocking, and it so kind of goes up against what we typically think about when we think about the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that when, he, when we hear that, we're like, nah, Jesus doesn't really mean that. <laughs> like, don't worry, he doesn't really actually mean that our righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He means it. He means it with every ounce of their being. But like I said, he's redefining what it means. When he says that their righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, he's not saying that it needs to exceed it in amount, but that it must exceed it in its nature. Some of you are like, okay, that sounds good, but I don't know what that means. Uh, Let me explain. It's not as if the Pharisees and the scribes sat down to take the righteousness exam and they got a B minus. And what Jesus is saying is like, okay, now you need to take that exact same exam and you just need to score better. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, they got a B minus, but you need to take that and get an A plus. No, friends, listen. The scribes and the Pharisees, they got an A+. But they got it on the wrong exam. Because they thought that righteousness could be completely defined externally. By mere external conformity to some kind of set of written codes. And so all throughout the sermon, and friends, I don't even just mean chapter 5, and I'll say more about what I mean by that. All throughout the whole sermon, Jesus is redefining real righteousness, not to something harder or harsher, but to something better and more beautiful than what they were aiming after. He's he's making something so much better. He's doing this all throughout chapter 5 where he keeps saying, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Again, he's not changing what the Old Testament scripture said. I'll just grab one example for time's sake. He says, you know, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. 
But I say to you, like, even if you're angry, he's not saying, like, okay, from now on, murder's totally fine. No, like, it's still the case that you should not murder. But the point that Jesus is making is saying, don't think that you can just not murder and that you're a completely righteous person. The intent of the command to not murder is not just to get you to feel righteous and, and just and good and all those things because you've never killed somebody. The point of the command is to get you to think even more deeply about that, to get you to think at the very innermost recesses of your inner being. What kind of person am I? What are my actual heart attitudes towards my brother and sister? Which is why Jesus is saying, like, look, even if you have anger in your heart towards another person, that doesn't actually reflect real righteousness. And look, you, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Like, once again, Jesus couldn't actually be saying that this is what he expects from us. He actually is. And some of you are like, okay, wait a minute. I know that he's not saying that because at the very end of chapter 5, he says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so none of us is perfect, so he can't actually mean that. I wasn't actually going to spend time on this, but I, I, I have to because I can tell. Without even you saying it, I can tell. Like I can see in some of your minds, you're immediately going to that objection. Like he says perfect, none of us is perfect, so he can't actually be requiring us. Well, I'll just say this, and I may not be able to convince you convincingly this morning, but hang on, we will spend one whole Sunday just on that phrase, but I'll say this now. I think it's a rather unfortunate translation. I know sometimes I can feel a little bit like a, like a cop-out or like a, like a cheat code, and I try to avoid that, and I'm not trying to do that. And, and I don't want to say it's a bad translation as if like that word can never mean that. Sometimes that word can mean something like, like perfect, but I say it's a bad translation it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible because in a room like this, in a room full of, of English speakers in today's world, when we hear perfect, we can only think absolutely 100% perfection without any error or mistake any of the time. And that is not what this word means, and that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, elsewhere, this same word is often translated simply as mature or complete. In fact, in many of the epistles, the Apostle Paul will use this same word to describe Christians, anyone who is in Christ. They, he, they describe as a complete being. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying real righteousness is not just mere external conformity. It's about being a, a consistent, whole person being where the what's on the inside of us matches what's on the outside of us and friends he's not just talking about this here in chapter five where he says all these things about you've heard it said but i say to you this is the theme of the whole sermon he's talking about the same thing in chapter six when jesus talks about these these areas of our spiritual lives he talks about about giving and about praying and about fasting he says don't be like the hypocrites who do these things you know it's interesting in our culture today in our world when we use that word hypocrite, we typically use that word to mean this. Somebody who says one thing but does another. Right? That's typically what you and I mean when we say hypocrite. And, and we are very frustrated by people who are hypocritical. And that is one way to define hypocrite. But that's not the way that Jesus is using the term hypocrite here. 
In chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about hypocrites, when he's talking about giving and, and praying and fasting, he's not talking about people who say one thing and do another. He's talking about people who actually do those things. These are the people who are seen and known to be giving to the poor, to be praying out publicly all the time, to be fasting and making sure everyone knows that they're fasting. And that's the whole point. He's saying not that they say one thing and do another, but that they do one thing, but what they're doing externally doesn't match what's there on the inside. Which is why he begins all of chapter 6 by saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And what Jesus is doing is inviting us into a greater righteousness, this whole being responsiveness to God that even our so-called religious activity isn't then merely just religious activity. It is, it is inward devotion towards God that shows itself in our external practices. I mean, friends, even the Lord's Prayer. I mean, even the Lord's Prayer. Talk about one of the most well-known parts of the Bible. The Lord's Prayer happens right there in the middle of chapter 6 in this ongoing discussion about these religious practices being done not to be seen by others, but to be seen by God our Father. I mean, the Lord's Prayer is included in all of our confessions and creeds recited in our liturgies. But it's often missed that of all the lines of the Lord's Prayer... Jesus chose to comment on only one of them. Just one. Forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. That's the only line in the whole Lord's Prayer that Jesus actually comments on. And it's to say this. If you forgive others, you will receive forgiveness. If you don't forgive others, you won't receive forgiveness. And listen, this is not some mechanical Promises. If you can just, okay, fine, I can, I can make God give me forgiveness by forgiving some other person. No, once again, Jesus is just getting at this issue of real, whole person righteousness. I mean, what kind of person acknowledges their own need for forgiveness, asks God for it, which, by the way, that's proof right there that Jesus is not intending to say you must be absolutely perfect and never make a mistake or never sin. How could he say that he expects us to never sin and then teach us to pray, Father, forgive us? But how could a person be aware of their need for forgiveness, turn to God and ask for it, and then turn around and refuse to forgive somebody else? That's an incomplete person. They, like, they, they lack a basic integration between their external actions and their true inner being. They lack anything that Jesus would define as real righteousness. And maybe you're thinking, okay, like all this righteousness stuff, it's all about like very religious type things. It's about, you know, prayer and fasting and, and giving. Like maybe you're thinking to yourself, Jesus isn't speaking to where I live my actual life. Like, I got problems, I have anxieties, I have worries, I have bills to pay. Oh, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus doesn't see us exactly where we live our life. Because he brings that same theme home 
right there. At the end of chapter 6, he talks about anxiety. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Again, he's not saying... He's not saying, you better not be anxious. If you're anxious, I'm going to know it. You better not be anxious or else. I mean, what, what better way to be anxious than to read it that way? No, he's inviting us into a life where we can trust God as our heavenly father. And we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to constantly be worried about tomorrow. And even then, Jesus describes that in terms of righteousness. He says in verse 33 of chapter 6, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. This is how he's saying you can avoid anxiety for tomorrow. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Friends, Jesus is putting forward an attractive vision of life lived with real Genuine righteousness. You know, it's interesting, so often when we think about righteous people, I mean, we think about people who are, who are uptight, who are strict, who are rigid, who are judgmental. The entire picture of the righteousness that Jesus teaches is nothing like that. It's a picture of people who are free, who are generous, who are open, who are not judgmental. That's why even those famous words of the opening line of chapter 7, the famous words that everyone knows, you know, judge not lest you be judged. What Jesus means is that we ought to be the kind of people who make evaluations of others with the same measurement that we would use when we make evaluations of ourselves. It's no wonder Jesus lands the main body of his sermon on these words. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And friends, I think sometimes we miss this because this whole, this whole language of righteousness, it just kind of trips us up. You know, we have other New Testament passages in our mind that tell us like, no, no one is righteous. No, none are righteous. No, not one. And guess what? That's true. But here, Matthew is not presenting Jesus' explanation to us about how we become righteous. He's not talking about how it is we can live all these things. He's actually just redefining what it really means for us to be righteous. And so when we hear righteous, we just immediately kind of jump to the, oh no, none of us can do that. So Jesus must not actually mean any of the things that, that, that he means. Friends, I think that completely misses the whole point of the sermon. Now listen, don't hear me wrong. If we could bring Matthew up here right now and say, Matthew, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Okay, first, how is it that someone becomes a Christian? Like how do we actually enter into a relationship with the living God? I believe Matthew would say, repent. Like turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from trusting in anything else. Don't put confidence in your own goodness, in your own righteousness. Turn from everything else and turn to Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him. Believe in him. Believe that he came and lived this perfect life. Believe that he died on the cross as a willing payment and a substitute for you and your sin. So that if you believe in him, he gives you his perfect righteousness. That is how I think Matthew would answer the question of how do we become a Christian? And then if you were to follow it up, 
and say, okay, Matthew, well then, what kind of person will you become if you become a Christian? He would say, oh, you've got to read the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to read the Sermon on the Mount. Friends, if I can just say it this way, this is the kind of person that Jesus saved us in order to become. So my friend, uh, Alex Pichetti said, it was a couple years ago, one of my favorite moments that we've had in a worship service, he was up here getting baptized, and he said in his testimony, he said, Jesus has saved me, Jesus is saving me, and Jesus will save me. Friends, Jesus has saved you from your personal unrighteousness through his death on the cross. And he has given you his spirit, and he is presently saving you by bringing about this real righteousness in us, in our lives, in our hearts. He is saving you day by day, making you more and more into this kind of person. And one day he will completely, finally, perfectly save you when you will fully, 100%, without any falsehood or error or mistake, be like this when he returns or calls you home. Friends, the the cross of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount are not at odds. They're no more at odds with each other than the, than the Revolutionary War and the Constitution. Like, which one of those, like, defines what it means to, like, live in the country that we live in? Well, the American Revolution and the Constitution both constitute what it means for us to be here in the same way. The cross is the defining thing that transforms us to be defined by this thing right here, this real righteousness. Like, I think we can even catch glimpses of that, that, that even here in this sermon, Jesus is expecting that we will understand that he is inviting us not just to, to merely do our best to try to follow this in our own power, but that he's inviting us to come to him. We see that in the conclusion. Last thing, third point, Jesus redefines humanity all of humanity into two groups. Chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. That's how he brings this whole thing to a close. He uses three different groups of two. There's two gates, the narrow and the wide. Jesus says you've got to enter through one of them. There's two kinds of fruit. There's those who bear good fruit and those who bear bad fruit, which even there, there's a hint that Jesus is expecting us to understand that this righteousness is not something that we can produce in ourselves. It's got to come from someplace else, and it is produced as fruit in us. But there's two kinds of houses. I've only got time to focus on the last set of these twos, verses 24 and 27. I read it earlier. I'll read it again to you. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, think of that claim. Everyone who builds their lives on these words. 
I mean, listen, this is, Jesus is not just presenting himself here as like another prophet. I mean, you know what prophets did? Prophets said, thus saith the Lord. In other words, don't kill the messenger. Like, this isn't my thing. I'm just letting you know, like, what God told me to say to you. I'm kind of bringing this to you as the kind of mouthpiece, that kind of. Jesus is not saying anything like that. Jesus is saying, this is me. These are my words. These words come from me directly, so much so that you cannot actually separate the message from the messenger. In this instance, Jesus is actually, in a sense, saying, I am the message. You need to actually shape the very bedrock of your life on me. You could say that Jesus is in the business of foundations. Uh, unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to look at far too many homes in my lifetime. The first time we were looking to purchase a home, I think we looked at some 50 before we found one that uh, suited us and that we could actually get. But I can remember there was this kind of this common thing when you first start looking at homes and, you know, you're always looking for the fun stuff, the stuff that that everyone looks for. I remember a home inspector telling me the same thing. You know, people always come into a house and the very things that they want to look at, they want to see an updated kitchen and bathrooms. Like those are the things that people want to see. They want to walk into a kitchen. They want to see like, you know, like nice granite or like marble countertops and like a cool backsplash and, you know, maybe some like nice recessed lighting. Like those are the things that people are typically looking for when they're walking into a house. Not me. And look, I'm not trying to give you the impression that I'm some kind of a house guy. I'm not a house guy. Some of you are house guys. But I've learned enough from other house guys to know what to look for. When I went in the houses, I wanted to go downstairs into the basement. And I hoped it wasn't a finished basement. Not because those aren't cool. They're really cool. But in finished basements, you can't see the foundation walls. Because that's what I want to look at. I want to go down to the basement and I want to look at the, at the foundation walls. I want to see thick, clean poured concrete walls with no cracks in them. Friends, what Jesus is saying is that he can do that to the very foundation of your life so that when the rains come and the floods come and the storms come, nothing, nothing can take your life away, which is only ever true if you found your life on him in every single way. You can't separate the teaching of Jesus from the person and work of Jesus. He's in the business of calling people to himself to make the very foundations of our life rock solid and built on him. Well, listen, I need to wrap this thing up. I want to do so by just making a brief argument by example. I know arguments by examples aren't always the strongest arguments. But I do want to say this. Uh, you know, as a, as a pastor, I want to say this too. As a pastor, there really are biblical qualifications that pastors must live up to that are given to us in Scripture. And so I'm, I want to be clear about that. But at the same time, at the same time, just a guy. Like there's a sense in which I'm just a Christian 
just like so many of you. And just like you, there are times when, like, you, just, you know this, the Christian life just kind of, like, ebbs and flows. And there's some times where you're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, the, the things that I'm doing in my life, my devotional life, how I'm treating other people, how I'm living at home, that's just, oh, that's just flowing naturally from this, this heart of affection for Christ. But we all know it's not always like that. And me, just like you, there are times when, no, like, I... I, I am living the Christian life out of a sense of duty. Like, I'm just like, I don't feel it, but I'm trying hard. I'm trying to get there. Listen, friends, I want you to know that nothing, there has been nothing in my life that has so recently inflamed my affections for Christ. As his words given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, I can't make a promise that that's absolutely gonna happen for you, but I think it will. I think it will. If you set out this morning to begin this journey, to take this word seriously, and to come to Jesus' words in the sermon as good words, words meant to impart life, words to live by. I think he'll do the same thing for you. And I pray that he will do the same thing for the life of our church. Let's pray. God, thank you for this picture of your son, Jesus. Lord, even as week in, week out, we gather to celebrate the one who gave his life for us, who died for us on the cross, we're reminded, even in the sermon, that this is the one who laid down his life. This is the character and the life and the words and the teaching of the one who laid down his life for us. He laid down his life to make us a people like this. Oh, Lord, would you, would you convince every mind that needs convincing? Would you overcome every obstacle in every heart this morning? Would you captivate us with this beautiful vision of the life that we always actually wanted to live, even if we didn't know it. Would you produce this life in us as only you can? We ask in the precious name of Jesus.